We're in Nehemiah chapter 10, getting through it. But I want to pick up with chapter 9, just the last verse of it, 38, because uh, what Nehemiah does, he begins to look at the history of the children of Israel, all of the failures, all of their stiff-neckedness, all of the rebellion, but how a faithful God continued to love them and to be with them. So verse 38 says, and because all of this, all of their history of disobedience and rebellion towards God, they said we make a sure covenant. And that word covenant is not in there. We're, it's known, we're known back in the day to cut covenant. They would take an animal and, and then uh, make, their oath, make their promises on that. But that's what it means to cut a covenant. That's what they're doing. And they said, and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Once again, they've rehearsed all of their failings. Remembered and how Yahweh had remembered them, his faithfulness and mercy, and they've seen the error of their way, it seems like. And what they're really saying is, give us one more try, Lord. Give us one more chance. Once again, they say, we make a sure covenant. We'll do it this time. We're going to be faithful to you, God. The problem is they can't and we can't be faithful to God. It's a pattern that an unregenerate person will always do. They turn away from God, remember? God deals with them, sends them a prophet. They won't listen, so he sends enemies. In love, he sends enemies to try to get them to repent and turn to him. They finally start crying out, and he subdues their enemies. They cry, we promise this time, Lord. All right, we'll walk in your ways. And they begin to grow fat in the mercy of the Lord. They forget about God again. He sends a prophet to them. Then he sends the enemy, and they start screaming again. And this goes on all the way to the New Testament until we get to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now we can do something. Because all what was based in the Old Testament is man keeping the law of God, and we can't do that. And it's based on man's faithfulness to God, and that won't work either because we're not faithful. But all of that ends at the cross because that's where a new covenant begins that is based on God's faithfulness to man, to us. God accomplishing what you did you and I could never do. And that's the cycle that runs throughout the Old Testament. That cycle that never seems to end sometimes. We know about it because we've lived it. We've experienced it. Lord, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try. But unless we're born again, it's complete failure. Jesus said it was finished on the cross. And that was judicially the very righteousness of Jesus Christ has been placed upon the believer through faith and the whole process of failure is finished. God's wrath now is satisfied. 
through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is when the whole pattern of failure is finished. So verse 38, they're getting ready to try again. And we already know what the results will be. They said, we make a sure covenant. We're going to sign it. And, you know, repentance is good when it's genuine repentance. There must be a commitment to really act accordingly. Repentance is good, but what they needed and what we all need is revival attached to it. As we come into chapter 10, we see a, it's an interesting picture. There is first a willingness, that's good, of submission. Lord, we're going to submit to your word, the word you gave us by Moses, number two. We're going to separate from the people of the land. And number three, we're going to support your work and what you're doing. This house that we've just finished here. We've got the walls of Jerusalem up by this time. Nehemiah came. We've got the temple. It's finished now. It doesn't have the glory of Solomon's temple, but that's okay. It's not like the, you know, people said, I remember the good old days. But when you really think about it, the good old days weren't as good as we tend to think they were. So their hearts are convicted, and you don't live in a building anyway, God. So, Lord, our hearts are before you, and we're going to demonstrate it. They demonstrate it in three ways. Number one, in submission. Number two, submission to God always leads to separation. So that's number two. And number three, they begin to support the work of the Lord. And that's what the theme of this chapter is about. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah. He's the leader. He's the spiritual leader. The governor, the Tersada, that's what governor means. The son of Hekaliah and Zedekiah. And then he starts to name the priest. Verse 2, it says, Zariah and Azariah, those that signed it, sealed it. And I'm not going to read all of them, but you can go home and read it yourself and understand these names a little better. We'll go down to verse 8. These were the priests. It was 21 of them. Verse 9, it says the Levites, and all the Levites signed it. And then you can read their names, and like I said, and go home and practice these names. And then we get to verse 14. The leaders of the people and it gives you the leaders of the people and all their names. And we won't read all those either. Verse 28 says, now the rest of the people. And it's probably about 50,000 people here at this time. He says, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and Nethanim, and all those. Notice now, here's this picture. The first thing it says, who has separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, to the law of God, their wives, their sons and daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. That means they're at the age, probably 12 to 13, understanding of the, of the word, could understand what the Lord is saying. Verse 29 says, these join with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into, not a promise, the scripture says, a curse. Do we want relationship with God so much that we'll say, Lord, if I don't, if we don't, 
then curse me. They had a hunger. They're tired of their backsliding. But really in the Old Testament, you couldn't do much about it because the Holy Spirit could not come into you. The new covenant wasn't there. But I commend them on their wanting to do the right thing. God takes note of that. He says, entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, literally by the hand of Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinance and his statutes. So the first part of this was their commitment. Lord, we're going to do this. We really want to do this. We're signing it. We're serious. And they word, it says, give us one more shot. That's what they're asking for. You can count on us. How many times have we said that? We're the contract signing crew. We're going to be faithful to what we've just agreed to, to walk in your ways, Lord. We're going to do that. We're going to keep your law. Galatians tells us we can't do that. Galatians says the law is our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. This is the written word, and it came to them by the hand of Moses, not the mouth of Moses. So, Lord, your written word is going gonna, is gonna to be the standard in our lives. And, you know, once again, are we really willing to bring our lives into submission, into subjection to the written word of God? If we're not serious about those things, we're wasting our time when we read the word. We're wasting our time when we come to church. If we're not ready to submit and surrender, say, Lord, your ways are better than mine. I don't know it all. You know it all. And you know the correct way to lead me. So verse 29 says, the latter part, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances. The idea is the decision that the leaders make, the ordinances, and his statutes. Those were ritual obligations. So they are putting, they are pushing their chips in the middle of the table. We're willing to do this. First of all, God's word is the final authority. Doesn't care what man says, doesn't matter how man tries to exegete a passage. God's word is the final authority. We know under your word, there's order in your kingdom, Lord. It's not a democracy. We like to boast on democracies, but in the kingdom, and right now, it's not a, a democracy at all. And so there's ritual, ritual observances that they have to take. They're under the law with sacrifices and those, kind, those kinds of things. We're willing to do all of that and to walk in it, Lord, we're just not going to argue about it. We're not going to have these theological debates about it. We're going to walk in your law. We're going to live it. This is your word, Lord, and they're serious about this. We're committed to that. One of the main manifestations of their commitment to what they're saying, they begin to do something. You know, we can talk a good game all the time. You can quote scripture, know scripture, but until you say, Lord, you know what's best, and I'm going to walk in your way, that's when, you, that's when you're doing good. The latter part of 28b says, and all those who had separated themselves. So that, that's the fruit 
of their wanting to obey, separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of, the, of God. And you know, the secret of separation is simply loving somebody with all your heart that will make you separate. You know, when someone is in love, I always think about guys because when, you, when they're in love, you know, they come to church or they go anywhere and they're just, you know, put on a wrinkled pair of jeans or a dirty pair of jeans and a no iron shirt and all this stuff. But as soon as they fall in love and meet someone, and they come to church, you start seeing them nice shirt on, nice pants on, all these iron pants. <laughs> They're separated. They're becoming separated to something. And that's the key here. I've tried a lot of diets. As you can tell, none of them has worked. But a love diet always works. Because you're trying to impress. And so I'm going to lose this weight. I want to make sure I keep the girl and get the girl. And you're losing weight. You're doing all these things. And that's the way it is when someone comes to know the Lord. Your friends begin to say, hey, so-and-so used to hang out with me. I used to go and watch football games with him and all this stuff. And that just automatically stopped. Because you're separated unto God, don't, God does not want your love in a drudgery style. He wants the, you to gaze upon him and see his glory and remember how much he loves you, that he gave his life on the cross for you. And that automatically you start separating yourself to someone you love. And that's what's happening here. And that's what the children of Israel is going to do. The secret to separation unto, it isn't just separation from, it's separation to something. Christians who think, oh man, I can't drink anymore. I can't do this anymore. I can't do that anymore. That's not separation. You're going to fall again and quickly. If all you're concerned about now that you gave your life to the Lord, I can't do this, I can't do that. You're not going to last long. Separation is when Jesus Christ becomes your everything. That's who he should be, our everything. I can't wait till I get up and read my Bible in the morning. I can't wait to spend time in prayer with you. I can't wait. Even when I'm driving the car, Lord, I'm thinking about you. I have a one-track mind, and it's all about Jesus. And I don't mind being separated unto him because he's worth it. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It won't be a drudgery. It won't be a burden. You love me so much. That's all you think about. That's all you know. And that's what the children of Israel is doing here. You can be in the presence with the Lord, read his word, and all of a sudden, he shows up. And, and you feel his presence. And you say, Lord, why do you deal with me? I'm reminded when David went into the house of the Lord, and he says, Lord, is this the way you, you, communicate, you, 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 you communicate with everyone? Why me? 
And every believer knows that feeling. Lord, why me? Why would you choose me? Why would you spend time with me? Why would you be so merciful and long-suffering to me? And you fall in love with him. You can't help but to fall in love with him. The key to separation is separation to something. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 14 says this, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also might do. No, Scripture says you must do. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And we read, you know, you want to put off these things. I mean, there should be a change. If I'm a believer, if you're a believer, there should be a changed life. In Christianity, it's not a religion. You don't join the church. People come and say, how can I join the church? You can't join it. You have to be born into this church. The church is a family. The church is a living organism. It's not an organization. And the problem is that people who think they can join the church, they try to make some mental assent. Oh, I'm, I'm now Christian since I've joined the church. No, you're not. Unless you've been born again. And then they said, well, I'm not born again, but I'm still a Christian. There's only one kind of Christian, and that's a, a born-again Christian. That's a regenerate Christian by the power of God. doesn't matter at all what you think. The only Christian there is is a born-again Christian. Because to become a Christian is to experience the miracle of regeneration. That's what makes us special. That's what makes us strange in this culture. It's the power of God in our lives. There's a life change that happens. You're not the old creature anymore. You're a new creature created in Christ Jesus. There's a new life for us. The Holy Spirit comes in and indwells us. The living Christ comes into our hearts. And we're not just practicing some religious gymnastics. There's been a regeneration, a miracle, a power of God that comes inside of us. You know, the simple born-again believer should know that the Word of God says, should know what it says, and that it's, final, it's the final authority, not, not any mental gymnastics. It's what the Word of God says. This is right. It's always right. And then you separate yourselves from, not from, but unto Unto Christ, 
put off a course, but put on. That's the real secret of separation. It's putting on. Who do you love? Because when you love somebody, truly love them, you spend time with them. You quiet yourself in the presence and just absorb all they have and all they are. That's what we should do with Jesus Christ, to sit with him, to hear his voice, to to hear him whisper, this is what this text says. But I don't even want to talk about the text right now. I want to tell you how much I'm in love with you. That's what Christ does. So the first thing they talk about is, okay, Lord, we're going to walk in your word. We're going to obey you, and we're going to separate ourselves from the people of the land unto your law. Now, look what verse 28, the latter part of 28 says. Remember, it says their wives, their sons, but it says their wives first because what it's saying is the men should take the lead. Whose wife? Your wives. The men should be leading them. And then it says their sons and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. Our culture, and I say it all the time, is grievously suffering because dads have not stood up and been what they need to be in the home. Even if they're in the home, the man is lacking to lead and be the spiritual leader of the, of the house as the high priest of the home. It says here in ancient Israel, it says, we're going to stick with the law, they're saying. We're going to separate from the land. Our wives, the man taking the lead, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these join with their brethren. So separation, it's not isolation. This is part of separation as people, they have separated themselves from the world. They have an affinity with one another, and that's what we should. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the most important one, Jesus Christ, in common with all of us. That should bring us closer together. 29, the latter part says, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. So they enter into this curse. Doesn't seem like that much, that's much fun to enter into a curse. But what is it? It's no doubt when they heard Ezra reading the law, and remember he read from Deuteronomy 17, 27, 11 through 13, it says, and Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, these shall stand on Mount Gerasim when they come into the promised land to bless the people. When you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali. These were blessings that were pronounced and curses that the children of Israel said, Lord, we're going to do this. We're going to walk with you. And if not, Lord, then let this come upon us. That's how serious they were. This is what you should do to a rebellious person, Lord. 
And if no man sees them, because, you know, you can get away with things sometimes, and, and you, you might get away with it all your life. But you have to understand you're not getting away with it with God. I say it all the time. He takes perfect notes. He's a good bookkeeper. It, it speaks in the Old Testament about some people he throwed on them this disease called the botch, B-O-T-C-H. Now, I don't know what the botch is, but I know I don't want it because it was a pretty bad disease. He says, I will give them the botch if they do not obey me. But they're saying we're going to do this because that's going to be the place of blessing. And they're right. The place of blessing is always walking in the path the Lord wants you to walk in. And if we rebel, Lord, you can do this. And they're kind of reiterating the whole procedure. They entered into a curse. They made an oath. And it says in verse 30, we would not give, and this is the oath they made, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. This has nothing to do with a racial thing. No one can never use the Bible to prove racial discrimination. It's not there. This is a spiritual, religious thing. They separated themselves uh, not racially, but religiously from the pagans of the land that worship other gods. That's why the Lord said, hey, stay away from them. That That would have been their demise, and it will be their demise if it was not for the mercy of the Lord. They said, we're not gonna let our daughters marry unbelieving men. And you know, We could use a real dose of that in the churches today. People say, I'm in love with this guy or this girl, and they find out they're unbelievers, and they still go on and get married. And then they have problems after problems after problems. I can understand when two unbelievers are in church or wherever, and and one of them gets saved. That's a problem right there. Because you have two natures marrying one another. And so you're really serving two gods at the time. No wonder things don't go right. But for a believer, man or woman, to marry an unbeliever, you're asking for trouble. And that's why they're saying, Lord, we're not going to do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, what does light and darkness have in common? Nothing. What does Christ and Biel have in common? Nothing. These things, they never work out. And, it, and it, it's not going to work out right here. Verse 30 says, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Verse 38, if the people of the land brought wares, that's goods, or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day. In other words, the children of Israel got to the point where they were shopping on Sundays. I know y'all don't do that. We, we need those blue laws to kick back in. <laughs> Remember those blue laws? You, you, there was no shopping on, there was no buying alcohol on Sunday, none of that stuff. That's all the Lord is saying to them. And they're saying, we're going to keep the Sabbath again. It doesn't say they couldn't buy goods from the people of the land and so forth or or produce 
But selling or buying on the Sabbath was a no-no, God's telling them. He says, and we would forego the seven years produced in the exacting of every debt. Now, to do this, some of the people I know to do this, they would quickly fall away if they, if they lend money all the time. <laughs> Let me put it that way. So I want you to see the seriousness of the children of Israel. They have a heart to follow the Lord. Christians, I go back and forth with people all the time, but Christians, we don't keep the Sabbath. Remember, Sabbath is sundown, Friday evening, sundown, Saturday evening. We worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. Sabbath begins, like I said, when the first three stars come out on Friday night until the first three stars come back out on Saturday night, the trumpet blows and the Sabbath is over. You know, as I was thinking with this war going on, I said, God, they were resting on the Sabbath and they come in and all of this shooting and firing happens. Why? Why? God knows why. He's going to protect his people. He does everything well. And I, I hear also Christians say, I want to keep the Sabbath. I, I, I want to keep the Sabbath day, but I don't think you really do because the Sabbath, you have to work six days. And so half of you wouldn't like it. And I'm a, I'd be on that part working six days. You wouldn't like that. You wouldn't hang in there long. And then... After the six days, when it starts talking about uh, giving your money and, and, and not receiving debt, the other half would leave right there on the Sabbath. So I'm glad we don't have to keep the Sabbath. The latter part of verse 31 says, and then it says, and we would forego, here it is, the seventh year's produce and the exacting, there it is, of every debt. Every seventh year. Anybody who owes a debt to someone, seven years up, you didn't have to pay it back. That's why they were so aware if you were going to lend money to somebody, you made sure it was at the beginning of that seven year, not at the end, because you're probably not going to get it. So that would be how you would try to work that, because all debts were clear after the seventh year. Verse 32, also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. That's right, one-third of a shekel. But somewhere during the day, I don't know when it happened, it turned back to half a shekel. I guess when they were coming over there, it was too much, and they, and, and they said, okay, just bring a third of a shekel. But in Jesus' day, it was half of a shekel you had to pay. They laid down a yearly tax to support the workings of the temple. The latter part of verse 31 says, and we would forego the seven years produce and the exacting of every debt. We're going to trust you because that's what they had to do. We're going to trust you, Lord. And they were trusting the Lord twice as much what they needed in the sixth year for the through the seventh year because they couldn't plant. And that seventh year, they didn't have welfare. They didn't have any of those programs going on then. 
That's why God being God, he says, no, the seventh year, let your fields lay fallow. Do not touch them. And all the foreigners, all the strangers, all those who needed food could go and gather as much as they wanted. I can't even imagine that. I remember when I planted that nice green grass in my little front yard, I put posts up and said, and I stayed out there at night saying, do not step in my grass. It's growing. Do not step in it. I mean, I stayed out there and looked through the window, made sure nobody's stepping in. Can you imagine a field, a garden, and you worked it and you, and you nourished it, and for that seventh year, people come and just eat all they wanted. But God was building trust. He said, do you trust me with this? I'm your provider. I'm going to take care. But they had to let it lay fallow for the entire year. And that eighth year would produce so much, it was like you didn't even miss it. That's how good God is. Remember, theologians say this might happen. They think it might happen one or two times that the nation let the seventh year relax, did not tend it, did not do anything. They, they, they used to say it happened maybe, maybe it happened one or two times. That's why when God sends them to Babylon, he says, I want all my years back, my seventh years back. And that's why they were in bondage as long as they were 70 years in Babylon. Latter part of verse 31 and we would forego the seven years produced and the exacting of every debt. <laughs> I got to laugh at this. Now in verse 32, we come to the ordinances and the charge, the taking care of the house of God, because they're, they've got to do that. And from verse 32 to the end of the chapter, you will hear the house of my God several times. You hear first fruits several times. Because God wants his house taken care of. So it says this. And we need to take ownership because that's what they're doing with the temple. They're taking ownership of the temple and everything. And we should take ownership of CR. If things need done, we should do it best of our ability. All of that stuff. So we should take ownership. That's what they're doing with the temple here. It says in verse 32, also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, verse 33, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offerings of the Sabbath, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offering to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. They certainly wanted their offerings to be there. So they, and they had, to, they had to keep a steady fire going on the altar. They never volunteered. Remember the Gibeonites? It was the Gibeonites when they played the trick on Joshua and they made them wood carriers for the house of the Lord. I don't know where that stopped, but now... They don't even say, I want you Levites to do this. I want you Issachar to do it. They says, everyone take turn in bringing wood 
to the altar because that, that fire had to continuously burn. You couldn't mess around and let it go out. And it never did. My point is, no one was put in charge over bringing the wood to the altar, but it got done. That's amazing to me. No one was ever put in charge for bringing wood to the altar, but it never went out. It got done. That's the way it is in here. When things need get done to get done, it, it, it gets done, whether it's bringing food, whether it's cleaning, whether it's taking trash out, moving tables, whatever it is, God moves a heart to get the job done. And we need to understand that's how the Lord works. If we could ever just bask on the goodness and the mercy of the Lord, that should prompt us to serve and to serve him with all we have. Verse 34 says, we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people, for here it is, for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. Once again, because it said, fire shall never go out. Verse 35, and we made ordinances to bring the first fruits. The first fruits is before you take any part of your field, whatever it is, the first fruit goes to the Lord. The best, right off the top, it goes to the Lord. Of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit, all trees year by year to the house of the Lord. You're going to find... The word first here in these next two verses, three verses, at least five or six times. Verse 36, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough. That's always tough for us to do. Our offerings, the first fruit of all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priest, to the storerooms of the house of God. What they're saying is, Lord, right off the top, you're going to get the best. Right off the top, before I touch it, you're going to get the best. And I want you to understand, he's not talking about tithing right here. Matter of fact, our church fathers, Eusebius and Tertullius, Tertullian, of all the church fathers, they tell us there was no tithing in the church for the first 600 years, not any. As you get to the 7th century in the Roman Catholic Church, because the state went in with the church in cahoots, they said, hey, why don't you start taking a tenth out? That's how it happened. There's, there's, so they're not tithing here. The Roman Catholic Church started it. But my point is, and what's God's point is, when we look at the goodness of God and all that he's done and that he's doing for us, First, Second Corinthians really says, 
if our heart is right, we should give more. It should be more than a tenth. We should give. And we should be hilarious about the giving. God is not going to be a debtor to none of us. We don't give just to receive, but we give because he's called us and the church needs things, but he will be no debtor to no man. I always tell anybody who knows me, if I borrow something from you, money or whatever from you, I give it back. And I tell my mom this all the time. If I have to go to the store for her to get something, I'll bring her change back and pay pay her for it because I pay for it. And she said, no, boy, you keep it, you keep it. I said, no, because I don't want you to say you made Abraham rich. (laughs) And you know where I got that from. I don't want you to say, and she just laughed. I don't don't want anybody to ever say, my wealth came from you. You made Abraham rich. No, you didn't make Abraham rich. And that's what God is saying here. We don't give. We shouldn't give leftovers to the Lord. We should give him the top. We should give him the best. Can you imagine a worshiper coming and bringing a, a lamb with a broke leg or with an eyeball hanging out or just any kind of lamb to the, to, to the priest, he wouldn't accept it. He talks in Malachi. You try doing this, giving this to your governor, to your, 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 your mayor. You try giving them this and see what they would do. They would reject it. So why would you not give me your best? Why would you not give me your first fruits, acknowledging that the only reason this field is blessed with crops and and, and fruit and all these things is because of my goodness and my love for you, knowing that you've got to provide for your family. And that's what we should do. Our coffers and churches who do the right thing would be overflowing for us to help more missionaries and things like that. God is not going to be a debtor to anyone. 37, last part of it says, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithe in all our farming communities. You know, the Levite has such prestige of all the tribes of Israel until I read the scriptures, I would have thought I would want to be a Levite. But the Levites had it bad because when the people, the children of Israel was in rebellion and they would not tithe and they would not bring their offerings, the Levites would go hungry. So they were teaching the word, and I'm sure they were teaching the word pretty hard. Hey, make sure you do this now. Make sure you bring that lamb. Make sure you bring that big calf. Because if the people were disobedient, they wouldn't eat. So that was a tough position for them. And the priests, the descendants of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. Verse 39, for the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. They had so much money stored in the temple. That's where they kept 
the shekel, the gold, the silver, all those things, when anybody would ever come in and just raid Israel, they would go straight to the temple. The people were so faithful, and they, were just, they knew the money was there because they knew Israel was faithful. God wants us to be the same way. I'm so glad we live under the new covenant. But it's still the right way to live, the right road to walk in, to do the things we should do. I can't, I can't say, Lord, I'm going to do this because Jesus has done it for me in the new covenant. I just ride along on his coattail and be obedient to his word. But these people had a heart to follow the Lord. I know people today who says, no, I'm good enough. I'm following the Lord. I'm doing this. I'm good enough. And they'll tell you in the same breath, but I'm not born again. And I'm saying, good gracious, you're missing the point. You're never, you will never be good enough. Jesus, that's why Jesus came. But we're to walk in obedience by the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to dictate to us, to whisper to us, this is the way to go, walk ye in it. And then yield to him. And the Lord will surely bless us. He'll bless the church, continue to follow him, continue to walk upright. Let's pray. Father God, You are an awesome God. What God is like you? (laughs) Quick to forgive. Quick to extend mercy and grace. That will not put out a smoking flax or break a bruised reed. You are long-suffering. You are long-suffering, and we need it, Lord. You've called. It's no telling how many prodigals you've called back home in your mercy, in your grace. But your grace will not last always. Your mercy will not extend to us always, Lord. I pray for our unbelieving grandchildren and children and friends and family members we may know, Lord. I pray that you would prick their hearts to repentance. Show them your goodness and your kindness. Your word says it's the grace of God that leads us to repentance. So you lavish your grace upon us, Lord, even the unbeliever, wanting them to repent of their sins, and turn to you. Lord, these, the nation of Israel, they are, in Nehemiah chapter 10, they are hungry to follow you. But they can't, no matter as much as they want to. They cannot follow you, just like we could not, until We gave our lives to Jesus Christ. And now the Holy Spirit resides in us so that we can please you, Father God. 
May we always understand where our blessings come from because we're in covenant relationship with you. You're our friend. You're that friend that sticks closer than a brother. You're our elder brother. You're our chief shepherd. And you're going to keep us to the end, Lord. Lord, I pray for CR. I pray for every family here, Lord. I pray that you would touch the sick and the hurting, the shut-in, Lord. I pray that you would show show yourself strong in their lives, that there would be no doubt that you love them, that you're with them, you'll never leave them nor forsake them. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.